long-term investors shouldn't be worried about this at all, really, mm-hmm. like at all. I really don't think it's anything to worry about if you're investing for longer than three years, which is what everybody should be doing. Mm-hmm. Investing on a roll three, five, ten-year basis, all of this is just noise. Inflation will eventually die, whether it's in the next three months, next six months, next 12 months, next 24 months, it will eventually die. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in a world that will have structurally low inflation uh, in a long-term window. We have globalization, we have technology, we have automation. All of these things are very disinflationary uh just in their nature. So um, I don't think people need to be worried about what the Fed is going to do if you're a long-term investor. If they hike 100 bips, okay. If they hike 75, okay. If the inflation CPI comes in 10 basis points above expectations or 10 basis points below, oh, well, okay. Just kind of absorb all these things and just continue to invest dollar cost average into very good stocks at a very consistent rate and you will make money in a rolling three, five, 10 year basis. So I don't think people need to be all that concerned about this. What's up HGI investors and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst, Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing today? Uh, good, Aaron. Good. Uh, tomorrow, which is going to be today for people watching this, one of the most important days to the stock market. So it's going to be weird for people listening to this. We don't know what's going to happen with the Fed, but by this time tomorrow, we will, and we'll have some pretty important answers. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about those the next week, too. Good. Well, definitely looking forward to getting to your predictions for tomorrow. Uh, in just a few moments, if this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, let's kick things off with the one thing that everybody's talking about right now. You kind of led into it already, the Fed. Uh, By the time our listeners hear this podcast, as you've already stated, the Fed will have announced their all-important September rate hike decision. Uh, We are recording this on Tuesday. So, Luke, what do you expect tomorrow, and how is the market going to react? Right, sure. So, yes, the Fed is is very important. And I know a lot of people are – actually, I know a lot of very smart people are saying the Fed is more important than inflation uh, because we have to see – you know, the Fed controls – money supply in the market, money supply in the economy, excuse me, and therefore is ultimately a determining factor of whether or not the economy expands or contracts and whether or not stocks go higher or lower. And I agree with that, but I think we have to understand is that the Fed is reactionary. The Fed is not, they don't wake up and decide, I'm going to hike interest rates just because. They wake up and decide, I'm going to hike interest rates because of inflation. So for me, for my analysis, I am still more focused on the course of inflation than what the Fed does because I ultimately believe the Fed is just responding to inflation. If inflation cools, the Fed backs off. If inflation doesn't cool, the Fed steps up their game. So the Fed is just going to respond to inflation. Ultimately, I think the real driver of market action remains inflation. Having said that, 
the Fed's response to inflation is very important. So tomorrow's going to be a very critical day for the markets. A more dovish than expected speech, more dovish than expected response from Fed, from, uh, from Powell, that will lead to a massive market rally. Uh, a more hawkish than expected speech, a more hawkish than expected announcement will lead to a massive market sell-off. The options market is pricing a huge move into October for the S&P 500. We're either going to break to 4,200 or we're going to drop below 3,650. It's kind of binary and it's all going to depend on what the Fed does tomorrow, what Powell says tomorrow. Going into that event, you know, it's not really worth speculating about because at the time people hear this, the the actual have already happened, but there are high odds of a hundred basis point hike. We're selling off into it. Yields are spiking into it. What I can say is positioning going into this event is very hawkish and very bearish leaning. That sets the bar low for a dovish surprise. Doesn't mean you're going to get a dovish surprise, but the bar is set low for a dovish surprise. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. And ultimately what does happen tomorrow, well determine the trajectory of stocks into mid-October until we get the next inflation print. And over that stretch, like I said, you're either going to get a big rally or a big sell-off. So the next four weeks, you're going to have a huge move in stocks, whether it's higher or lower, will depend on the Fed. And like I said in this podcast, it's not really worth speculating on because by the time people hear this, the action will have already happened. Okay, uh, I totally get we don't want to speculate on something where when we release this, obviously, the answer is already going to be there. But sticking with the macro picture, Luke, can you walk us through why the Fed and inflation are so important? You know, I, I kind of get it. But the correlation is so strong that I feel like sometimes I'm missing something when we have these conversations. So, you know, what is that story? What is the correlation between the two? Right. So, there's inflation has a lot of impacts. The Fed has a lot of impacts. Obviously, the higher inflation goes, the higher costs are, the lower profit margins are. Um, simultaneously, the higher interest rates go, the more expensive money is, the less money there is flowing through the economy. So when inflation and interest rates go higher, the macroeconomic picture kind of slows. But the more nuanced implication here has to do with valuations that when you step back and think about it, money um, can go essentially in, in three places. Um, but let's simplify things. It can go in a lot more than three places. But for, for the purposes of this illustration, let's say it can go into three places. It can either stay in a savings account, it can go into a bond, or it can go into a stock. So when cash makes a decision to go into one of those three places, it has to think about the return potential and the risk profile of each investment. Obviously, keeping cash in the bank is completely risk-free. Buying a bond is 99% risk-free, a treasury bond. Um, so those yields are considered risk-free yields. Um, stocks have a bit of risk to them. So obviously, to invest in a stock, you're going to want to have some premium return on that stock then you would get on a risk-free bond. So if your risk-free bond is yielding one, one and a half, two percent, then maybe you'll be okay with five, six, seven percent return on a stock. But if your bond is all of a sudden yielding three, four, five percent, then you're not going to be okay with five percent return on a stock because that's essentially the same as the risk-free rate. No, you're going to want eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent return on that stock, right? Mm -hmm. So when interest rates go, when inflation goes up, 
mm-hmm. interest rates go up. Mm-hmm. And when interest rates go up, bond market yields go up. Treasury yields go up. It goes from 2% to 3% to 4%. As that happens, the required rate of return on stocks also heads higher, which means the present prices of those stocks moves lower. And that's sort of the mathematical correlation going on here from a valuation perspective is you have mm-hmm. to compare the risk-free rate, the yield on a risk-free investment, which people use the benchmark they use is the 10-year treasury yield. Mm-hmm. So you got to compare the 10-year treasury yield versus the S&P 500 earnings yield, which is mm-hmm. essentially taking the P-E ratio and inverting it, one divided by the P-E ratio. So right now we're at 17.1 times uh, forward earnings on the S&P 500. Now, that is down from about 23 times at the beginning of the year. It is down from about 27 times at the end of 2020. So we've done a lot of deflating of the PE multiple. Um, but And it's also below where we were before the pandemic, right before we entered the pandemic, we were around 20 times forward earnings. Uh, but it's about average with where we were if you take the last five years before the pandemic or excluding the pandemic, the five years before the pandemic. That is about a 17 times multiple, 17.5 times multiple. So where we are today is pretty historically normal in terms of the context of the last five to 10 years. But what's different this time around is that bond yields have sharply risen. So we're looking at the 10-year treasury yield that is at 3.6% now. We're pushing up against 3.6%. The earnings yield is 5.8%. That means the spread, the the risk premium there is about 2.2%. And that is very thin. That Mm -hmm. is very, very, very thin. Over the past 10 years, the risk premium has averaged about 380 basis points or about 3.8%. So we are 160 basis points below average and at one of the lowest risk premiums of the past decade. Now, granted, risk premiums before the past decade were much lower because yields are much higher. So they have a tendency to kind of normalize one another. But still, with yields where they are and valuations where they are, the risk premium is tight meaning that either valuation multiples have to go lower or yields have to go lower. One of those two has to happen in order for this risk premium to normalize back to what are acceptable levels. And that's why the Fed and inflation matter so much, because if inflation stays hot and the Fed has to move more aggressively than expected, then bond yields are going to go higher, which inherently means valuation multiples where they are today at 17.1 times have to go meaningfully lower, likely to a 14 or 15 handle, which would imply another 15 to 20% downside in stocks. Mm -hmm. But if inflation decelerates meaningfully and the Fed doesn't have to be as aggressive as people think, then the 3.6% yield on 10-year treasuries can and will likely move down to 3%, 2.5%, 2%. If we get that, then all of a sudden this 220 basis point spread blows out to about 400 basis points. And it can squeeze down to 300, 250 around that area, which means multiples can go up to 19, 20, 21 times, which would imply a 20, 25% rally in stocks. So you see right now, we we sit on the precipice of a very important fork in the road Mm -hmm. where either inflation cools and the Fed backs off Mm -hmm. and we get massive multiple expansion with healthy earnings growth and a massive market rally or inflation doesn't cool down. The Fed doesn't back off. Yields go higher, in which case P multiples have to come way lower 
and earnings are going to come lower because the more the Fed hikes rates, the more the economy is going to take it on the chin. So we're at a very important fork in the road. And either we're going to rally 20% or we're going to tank 20%. And given the bulk of data today, what, what we're looking at, mm-hmm. we believe the bullish case is much more likely to materialize in the bearish case. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all the indicators of inflation are decelerating meaningfully. All the PMI surveys, manufacturing and non-manufacturing, from every single region, New York, Philadelphia, Dallas, the national ones as well, they are showing sharp, 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 sharp collapses in their prices paid indices over the past two, three, four months. And these declines are so big. We're talking 45, 50, 55 point drops. They're so big that historically speaking, such big drops have led to three to four points of disinflation on CPI over the subsequent three to four months. So that Mm -hmm. would imply inflation at the end of the year around 6% and then continuing to fall in 2023. Uh, Import prices are falling. Export prices are falling. Energy costs are falling because oil keeps dropping. Natural gas prices are dropping. You're seeing metal prices decelerate a little bit, though lithium kind of took a little little leg higher recently. But mostly uh, metal prices are dropping. And then most importantly, what a lot of people are missing about the inflation thing is everybody is concerned that oil is dropping because the SPR is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The U.S. is draining the SPR. Mm -hmm. And that once that drain is done, oil prices are going to shoot back up. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think oil prices are pretty stable in the $80 range. We talked about short oil when it was $120. We talked about covering that short. We talked about stabilizing in $80. Mm -hmm. That's still the base case for me. Uh, And if that happens, then transport CPI is going to continue to fall. That's just how the numbers work out. If oil prices stabilize in the 80s, then transport costs are going to keep falling on the CPI. Mm -hmm. So that's positive. But more importantly, energy collapsing was the first shoe to drop in the disinflation narrative. The second shoe to drop, what are the other, what's your other big cost besides, you know, your transportation costs, besides your fuel, besides your gas, besides your energy? Your other big cost is your, your shelter, your home. Mm-hmm. Or your rent, your mortgage, whatever yep. that is. Those are fine. That's the second shoe to drop because shelter costs are finally falling, Aaron. They're mm-hmm. finally falling. That in July 2022, for the first time in, I believe, three years, mm-hmm. home prices fell in America. And in August, according to more recent Redfin data, home prices decreased again. And more and more sellers are cutting their list prices or reducing mm-hmm. their list prices. So, You're seeing, it looks like July, August, September, some pretty significant disinflation on home prices. Mm -hmm. Now let's move to rents. Rents are probably the stickiest cost in the entire U.S. economy. Even in the great financial crisis, the housing crash, 2007, 2008, 2009, rents still didn't drop that much. So rents are very sticky. If you Mm -hmm. start to see rents drop, that means disinflation is very real. In August 2022, for the first time in 20 months, so the first time since before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. the first time in 20 months, um, asking rents dropped. Now, that's important because that's asking rents. That's not actual rents, which means 
Asking renter or leading indicator of real rent. If I'm asking for a lower rent, then you mm -hmm. sign the contract and that means next month the rent goes lower, right? Mm -hmm. So asking rents drop for the first time in August 2022, then that means real rents are going to drop for the first time in September 2022. Given what's happening with interest rates, given what's happening with mortgage rates, given what's happening in the housing market, I think this is the beginning of a multi-month deceleration in rental costs. Mm -hmm. If so, then that means a September October, November, and December CPI prints are going to have massive disinflation on shelter CPI. If that couples with continued deceleration in transport CPI, that's how you get a very rapid cool down in inflation that's very bullish for the markets. And that's why ultimately I am not terribly concerned about what the Fed is going to do or not going to do on Wednesday, September 21st. Mm -hmm. Their reaction to inflation. They could go 75 bips. They could go 100 bips. The market's going to react violently upward or violently downward. Either way is fine. Mm -hmm. If inflation cools meaningfully over the next few months, they're going to back off and the markets are going to rally. That's the bigger picture for me. we got to stay focused on inflation mm -hmm. as opposed to focus on the Fed. The Fed is just reacting to inflation. Mm -hmm. So two follow-up questions to a very – you explained it very well right there. Uh, the first being, um, you know, so you're, we have this prediction. It could go either way, depending on what they say. What's the strategy going into that? And two, you know, you've talked historically that the one thing that the market has always done is it's consistently gone up over the since its inception. The only way it's gone is up. We've had, you know, bad times and good times, but it's always gone up. Because it's always good, we kind of have that indicator that it will go up eventually. Why is this mm -hmm. even something that we need to worry about in the first place? Yeah, excellent point, Aaron. Excellent point. Uh, your first question is tied to your second question. So let me just kind of answer it all in one. Yeah. Uh, Long-term investors shouldn't be worried about this at all, really, mm -hmm. like at all. I really don't think it's anything to be worried about if you're investing for longer than three years, which is what everybody should be doing. Mm -hmm. Investing on a roll three, five, ten-year basis, all of this is just noise. Inflation will eventually die, whether it's in the next three months, next six months, next 12 months, next 24 months, it will eventually die. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in a world that will have structurally low inflation uh, in a long-term window. We have globalization, we have technology, we have automation. All of these things are very disinflationary uh, just in their nature. So um, I don't think people need to be worried about what the Fed is going to do if you're a long-term investor. If they hike 100 bips, okay. If they hike 75, okay. If the inflation CPI comes in, 10 basis points above expectations or 10 basis points below. Oh, well, okay. Just kind of absorb all these things and just continue to invest dollar cost average into very good stocks at a very consistent rate. And you will make money in a rolling three, five, 10 year basis. So I don't think people need to be all that concerned about this. Why are we talking about it? Because it's interesting to talk about. And a lot of people <laughs> want to make money on the short term. And Absolutely. Really, yeah. People want to make money in the short term. So mm -hmm. let's talk about it and, and, and talk about how we can make money in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, it's just interesting to talk about. It is very interesting to see, okay, how well the economy fare with rate hikes, how will inflation do? And if this does situation does get worse before it gets better, it will eventually get better. If it does get worse, you know, jobs will be at risk. So that's something people have to consider. Um, stocks could go down 20 25%. So that's something people have to consider. So these are things you just have to consider because short-term hysteria does take over so mm -hmm. um ultimately i don't think any of this truly matters in the big picture but for the purpose of looking at what stocks can make you money over the next six to 12 months this is very important mm -hmm. so that's why we talk about it um and that's why i think it's it's worth 
paying attention to? What's the best strategy ahead of this? I don't think you get terribly bullish or bearish before the Fed. You wait for the Fed to do their thing. You see what happens. And then you react to that information. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if they're more dovish than expected, that's a reason to buy into the rally. And I think if they're more hawkish than expected, you got to wait for the market to take out its June lows, maybe hold support there, and then you then you start buying the dip. So th those are my two strategies coming out of the Fed meeting. Either we rally and I buy into the rally because I think the October inflation print is going to be pretty good, mm -hmm. or we sell off and I wait for us to find support at the June, the mid-June lows, mm -hmm. and then I buy the dip because I think the October inflation report is going to be pretty good. So that's how I'm, I'm positioning for, for the Fed meeting. Okay. Uh, moving on, I want to definitely talk about some of the se sectors that we talk about here. Um, first, uh, last week we touched on sports betting for the first time, mm -hmm. I think, on the podcast, if not in a long time. Uh, we talked about how there was a huge boom at the start of the NFL season. Um, did that mm -hmm. boom continue into this week? You know, what's the update? What's going on here? Yeah, sports betting continues to surge. Um, I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, let's let's look them up right now. Um, I just I saw the headline. Yeah, it looks like sports betting had had another really big big week too. Um, you know the thing here is that it's it's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> betting. It depends on the type of gambling, but non-skill gambling mm -hmm. tends to rise in economic slowdowns. Okay. And I, I think that's going to be especially true this time around, that I think sports betting, the stuff through DraftKings, FanDuel, I think that stuff is really going to rise over the next six months. Obviously, you have the NFL season underway. Mm -hmm. um, then you get the NBA coming through. So I, you're going to have some some just seasonal tailwinds there. But the fact of the matter is when the pandemic hit, a lot of people came into the stock market. Mm -hmm. And these people made a lot of money in the stock market because 2020 was a fabulous year for stocks and 21 was a good year. And now they're, they're not making money in the stock market, right? 2022 mm -hmm. has been a really tough year for retail investors, especially. So these people came into the market through digital platforms, learned how to make money through their phones by placing bets, investments sure. on yeah. stocks, trades on stocks. And now all of a sudden that's not working for them. Mm -hmm. So I highly doubt that cohort of individuals is now all of a sudden going to be like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm not making money in the stock market. So that means I can't make money digitally or through my phone or through okay. investing, trading, betting ever again. I think what it means is they're going to pivot. That cohort's going to pivot from, okay, stock investing is not working out for me right now. Where else can I generate side income? That's going to be especially true in 2022, 2023, because inflation is super high. Rents are still high. Those things are coming down, like I said, but mm -hmm. they're still mm -hmm. very high and incomes are not keeping pace. So people are really starting to feel a pinch. They want to make extra money. They want to strike it big with something. They're not having that success in the stock market. So they're going to pivot. A lot of people are going to pivot to sports betting. And I think that's what the week one and week two NFL sports betting surges were about. There's a lot of pent up demand from that cohort to make money by getting on their phones and mm -hmm. placing a bet or placing an investment or placing a trade or doing something and earning a return on that, getting money back from that. Stock has, stocks have not played out for them. So now they're pivoting towards what I think is going to be sports betting. So I think this whole week one, week two surge in the NFL is actually the start and what will be a big second half 2022, first half 2023 surge 
in sports betting across all sports. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think sports betting stocks can do really well despite the macro environment. In fact, they might even do well because of a bad macro environment because mm-hmm. that could lead more people into sports betting platforms. So I am getting more and more optimistic and bullish on sports betting stocks at the current moment. The price action has been positive recently, and I think the fundamental trends support a further breakout in those stocks. So based off your thesis, if we have good macroeconomic conditions, do you see the shift going back from sports betting back to the market? Yes, that's a very interesting question. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think it will decrease the strength of the sports betting tailwind, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it will uh, eviscerate it at all. The people have been burned pretty badly in the market, and I think a lot of people want to try something new. So I do think that the sports – and then I think there's a whole other cohort of people that are just in sports betting because they like sports betting, not even because of of anything stock market related. Of course. (laughs) I do not believe that a stock market rebound – obliterates the bull thesis on sports betting stocks. Mm-hmm. I think that sports betting stocks can't work in either environment. And that's another reason why I'm pretty bullish or getting more and more bullish on those stocks at the current moment. Okay. Uh, EV check-in. Anything new here? You know, I saw a news piece about how lithium prices are rising again. You know, it's a, is that a headwind for EV stocks? Yes, yeah, so lithium prices are rising again. Uh, I don't think it's a major headwind. Um you're, you had a sharp rise in lithium prices after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They kind of mm-hmm. stabilized. Now they're coming back up. But ultimately, I do think supply chains are improving. And I do think that supply of lithium specifically is improving. There are more mines uh, being built. There's more money being uh, dedicated to project development in the space. So I think that supply of lithium is going to dramatically improve in the next one to two years. Demand's going to remain very robust, but I think the supply improvements are going to help costs move lower. Uh, not to mention, I don't think that these, I think these price hikes have kind of already happened in the EV space. So I don't think we're due for another fresh round of massive price hikes in 2023. The price is kind of already set. So I think that that's going to really help um, EV stocks for, for 2022. Um, beyond the lithium prices, yeah, we're seeing a lot of positive uh, developments in the space. Um, Mercedes-Benz just announced a really interesting long-haul uh, electric truck, uh, delivery truck. That's really interesting. Battery technology is now improving to the point of, of we can electrify you know, huge trucks going long distances. So um, that's, that's really impressive in, in my opinion. Um, and I think that uh, there was another big headline that I'm totally missing. What was it? What was it? Do 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 do. I'm forgetting it. I'm forgetting it right now. I'm forgetting it. But anyways, there has been. A, forgetting it too. <laughs> there, there have been a lot of positive developments in the electric vehicle space yeah. recently. New, new car launches. Uh, massive investments. GM just poured about five hundred million dollars into a stamping facility. I believe it's in Ohio, Illinois, it's somewhere in the Midwest, and that's to improve EV production capabilities. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of investment going into electric vehicle space. I remain very positive about the stocks in those space uh, in that space. The the ones that I'm really excited about are the ones that are beginning significant production ramps into 2023, which I think is going to be a pretty positive year for electric vehicles. Uh, so we're talking about Fisker, we're talking about Rivian, we're talking about Lucid, the, these new entrants mm-hmm. that are starting massive ramps 
into what should be a pretty good year for electric vehicles with with demand and supply. So I like the EV space still very positive on it. The whole kind of climate tech space I'm really bullish on. So we're staying constructive there. Okay. Uh, well, staying in the clean energy sector, uh, you know, shifting a little bit to energy storage, you know, I know you love that space. Um, and those stocks have been soaring. Um, so should we just remain bullish here? Yeah, I, I would absolutely remain bullish in energy storage stocks. I think there is fabulous. If I had to say one sector to stay bullish on for the next 12 months, regardless of the macroeconomic backdrop, it's energy storage. Mm-hmm. Because there is... There, the world has come to realize that we just need more energy, mm-hmm. that population growth, urbanization, digitization, all these trends are fan, fantastic, but they're creating a demand for energy that we don't have the supply to meet. So we need more energy. And a lot of people think it's it's through more oil and gas, more solar, more wind, restart the nuclear, get hydrogen in the mix. There's all these things going on. But at the epicenter of all of that, really, the one thing backstopping all this is energy storage, especially on the clean side of things. So we need more energy storage deployment. You just don't uh, – there's not enough of the grid – clean energy grid backed up by energy storage, battery energy storage systems for that grid to be very reliable. Why did California not have any blackouts despite all these fears of it having blackouts? Because there were record deployments from battery energy storage systems backing up the grid to supply power when necessary. Because California had a bunch of batteries, a bunch of BSS lined Mm -hmm. up across the state when this massive heat wave hit all across the state at once, unprecedented, there weren't any blackouts because the batteries saved the day. Over in Europe, we're seeing Greece, Ireland, Germany, the UK, they're all jump-starting massive battery energy storage system construction, deployments, project developments. You're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars getting allocated to this ESS space. Mm -hmm. Where energy needs are greatest right now, BESS, battery energy storage systems, are saving the day. Mm-hmm. I love technology that solves real world problems. Energy needs, lack of energy supply, these are massive real world problems. Energy storage systems are putting on the red cape and saving the day. They're playing Superman. And because of that, their invest the investment into the space is growing and mm-hmm. growing. And growing every single day. I go to energystoragenews.com. I'm reading some new impressive deployment or investment or, or project going on in the energy storage space all across the world. This movement is happening very fast. It's gaining traction and it's not going to give up that traction because what a lot of people kind of misunderstand is that the big climate bill that was passed by the U.S. government, what, two or three months ago mm-hmm. now, that climate bill had a lot of stuff in it, $400 billion worth going into the U.S. energy sector. But probably the most important line item was an investment tax credit, an ITC for energy storage systems, an ITC for standalone energy storage systems. Mm-hmm. That's huge. The whole solar boom in the 2010s, solar stocks were some of the biggest winners in the 2010s, end phase mm-hmm. energy, solar edge, sunrun. These were huge winners in the 2010s. That boom got started because the U.S. government in the early 2010s passed a ITC for standalone solar projects. Mm-hmm. That ITC financially incentivized companies to build out solar farms to uh, 
build solar panels. That started a boom in the solar industry and solar stocks soared because of that. We are now getting the exact same catalyst in the energy storage world. We're getting the first ever ITC for standalone energy storage. Since that was passed, it is no coincidence that we have seen a noticeable uptick in business momentum in the energy storage space. And that uptick will persists in the 23, 24, 25, 26. What the ITC did for solar in the 2010s, the ITC is going to do for energy storage in the 2020s, mm-hmm. meaning that some of the returns you saw on solar stocks in the 2010s will be replicated by leading energy storage stocks in the 2020s. We could not be more bullish on this space right now, Aaron. This is, without <laughs> a doubt, these are our top picks right now, our energy storage stocks. So what inning are we in energy storage sector? Uh, second or third, like they're definitely real. They're definitely happening. They're definitely being built. They're definitely providing real world value, California Mm -hmm. uh, right now. But I think something only like 1% of the grid is backed up by battery energy storage systems. Mm -hmm. That number needs to be like 20, 30, 40%. So this industry needs to grow rapidly. Um, Mm -hmm. That puts us in a sweet spot. We're in that sweet spot of where, it's, this isn't an unproven, you know, sci-fi technology. It's a proven real world thing that people are using and companies are using, countries are using all across the globe, but it has not reached ubiquity. Now starts the march to ubiquity. That is the time to start investing in these emerging technologies. When electric vehicles, you know, they were kind of bumbling around for a lot of the 2010s. Then the Model 3 was a massive success that showed the world that EVs can be mass produced and that demand for them is mainstream. That's when Tesla stock went crazy in 2020. That's mm-hmm. when electric vehicle stocks all rode, rising tide lifted all boats. So that was the year for EVs. And I think 23 could be the year for energy storage systems, that year where we realize, okay, energy storage is going to be a critical component of the grid everywhere. I mm-hmm. think that realization hits the market in 23. Energy storage stocks do for a massive 23. What inning, like I said, second or third, that means it's the best time to invest. So one of the other things that you, you know, consistently kind of talk about, and I think I've asked you this question before is, you know, what's the leader, what's the solution? And you've always come back with, you know, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of solar, a little bit of wind, a little bit of, a little bit of oil, a little bit of everything. So what about hydrogen? Anything, what's going on right now with uh, the hydrogen sector? Anything you to report there? Yeah, so I love hydrogen, love what's going on there. Um, there was actually something really interesting. Uh, was it? Last week or two weeks ago, some researchers from the University of Melbourne um, created this like a sponge. Okay. And what it does is it absorbs the water, the moisture in air, mm-hmm. and turns that into hydrogen power. Okay. Pretty cool. Like they're mm-hmm. literally making energy out of thin air. Because remember, um, hydrogen is produced through electrolysis. That hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, and yet it doesn't exist on its own anywhere on Earth. You can't just go mine hydrogen. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is, and the way they produce it is through electrolysis. They, they take an H2O water atom, mm-hmm. and they split the two H's and the one O, and they produce the hydrogen. That's the electrolysis process. So what you need is you need water as an input and hydrogen as an output. Mm-hmm. The air has a lot of water molecules in it. So what the sponge does is it takes advantage of that. It absorbs the water molecules from its surrounding environment and then does electrolysis and produces hydrogen. It literally produces energy out of thin air. Mm-hmm. That is one of the coolest things 
ever because what we're running into a lot of times with uh, clean energy development, with energy development in general, the byproducts of the energy production mm-hmm. with um, with solar it's you know these are very expensive projects to build you maybe need some deforestation like mm-hmm. there's there's some byproduct there with the creation with nuclear there's some safety concerns with with oil and gas obviously it's the climate concerns um with hydrogen though we're learning that you could just put a sponge like device anywhere and it can absorb water from the air and then produce energy that that is the lowest footprint least intensive almost no byproducts as a result of energy production. That is a very interesting solution that I think could gain a lot of traction. Granted, they, they researchers at the University of Melbourne made a very small device and it's, it's nothing that can be used to power anything of note. But mm-hmm. the fact that they created that shows that the science is possible here. Mm-hmm. You could create hydrogen sponges to power large parts of the world. Very cool stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm really bullish on the hydrogen sector. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential for hydrogen to become one of the more important components of the new energy economy in the 2020s. Uh, Plug Power continues to do some great things. They just signed a big deal with Amazon recently. Um, and I think it's another validation of hydrogen is that a lot of big companies are putting huge amounts of money, committing huge investments and resources into developing hydrogen or at least um, being a part of the hydrogen revolution. Walmart, uh, Amazon, uh, all big oil. These companies are going all in with hydrogen. So I like that validation. I remain very bullish on hydrogen stocks for the next 12 months. And again, you're bullish on the whole sector um, of clean tech right now. Is there? Do you have a favorite? I know that you like them all, but if you had to pick one, which would it be? Yeah, I'd go energy storage, um, hydrogen, uh, electric vehicles, solar, wind. Okay. That would be my sort of spectrum or my rankings for the the clean tech space. But I think all climate tech is going to perform very well. People like to talk about hidden bull markets out there, right? The hidden bull market in this stock market right now, climate tech stocks. Mm -hmm. Climate tech stocks have shown impressive resilience, even in the face of the recent pullback. They're up massively from their lows of the year. It looked like they want to keep breaking out. I love what I'm seeing in climate tech stocks right now. Are there opportunities below wind that you see at all? Like maybe you're not as bullish, but you kind of maybe down the road, they might be just as good as these, your top five. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean there's, there's, there's nuclear. Nuclear is mm-hmm. having a resurgence of sorts. I'm very interested in that space. Um, there's some, you know, biodegradable power. Um, not really sure where those efforts stand. I honestly haven't done much research on them recently. Mm-hmm. Outer space solar generation is a very interesting yet, far out there, many years removed uh, technology development happening in the space. Um, So there are definitely some other things happening out there and we're always watching and paying attention to them. Mm -hmm. But for right now, kind of the trio or the, the, the square, the, the, I think it's it's your top five. (laughs) Having uh, yeah. Top five. Yeah. My, my fave five of energy storage, hydrogen, solar electric vehicles and wind i think that that's a pretty your pentagon your energy yeah. pentagon my energy pentagon i think that <laughs> is my power pentagon that power is pentagon. Uh, i like that i like it. yeah there you go. alliteration right. that is that is that's my fave right now sure. <laughs> all right um so related to that um again interesting article that came out i saw that air canada 
ordered 30 electric aircraft last week from a startup in Canada. Um, right. Is this big news? Uh, we've, you know, we've talked about EVs before. Uh, traditionally, when we say EVs, we're talking about cars. Um, but is electric aircraft going to be the next big sector? Yeah, I, I don't think electric aircraft is the next big sector. I think hydrogen makes the most sense for aircraft because okay. it's a heavy-duty, <clears throat> um, long-haul transportation medium, and I think hydrogen is best suited to serve that need. But I do think electric aircraft makes sense in the framework of EV tolls, so electric vertical takeoff okay. and landing aircraft. Um, and I think this whole Air Canada ordering 30 electric aircraft from, I believe the company was Hearth or Heart Aerospace, one of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that is important is because I believe it underscores that EV tolls are, are ready to have an impact on Wall Street and then have an impact on Main Street. So mm-hmm. we talked about that EV tall megatrend. The whole idea is to have these flying taxis, so to speak, that are shuttling goods and people all across urban areas as this ideal mid-haul transport medium because you Mm -hmm. have to remember when you think about the transportation world there are fabulous short haul options i want to go to the grocery store i'm going to get in my car and drive to the grocery store i want to go to downtown i'm going to get in my car and drive to downtown i want to fly to new york i want to go to new york i'm going to get in and go to the airport get in a plane and then go to New York. I want to go to you know Hong Kong. I'm going to drive to the airport, get in a plane, and fly to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. There are great short haul and great long haul transportation mediums. There are not great mid haul, medium haul transportation mediums. Mm-hmm. I live in San Diego. I want to go to Los Angeles. I could do a plane. Mm-hmm. That's absurdly expensive for. Yep a very short flight mm-hmm. and it's also going to take a while because it doesn't matter if you're flying to LA or New York, yeah. you still have to go through security yep. and do the boarding and deep plan and all that stuff. So is it really going to save me time? I don't think so. Not that much. And it's going to be more hassle. So that's a terrible option. <laughs> now I want to drive. Mm-hmm. Anybody's listening to this, watching this is driven from San Diego to LA on a Friday afternoon or a Monday afternoon. They know what I'm talking about. That will be a three, three and a half hour drive. You will not move mm-hmm. for large stretches of it. And it is miserable. By the end, you will be as cranky as you could be. It is no fun. So what do I do? I could take the, the coaster, the Amtrak. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a two, two and a half hour trip. So it's still quite long. I'm not really saving that much time and it stops everywhere. So not really that great. Uh, there's not a great mid-haul transport from San Diego to LA. Likewise, there's not really a great mid-haul transport from uh, New York to Philadelphia, Boston to New York, um, Miami to Orlando, uh, Houston to Dallas, Denver to Salt Lake City. Um, there aren't Salt Lake City to Portland. There, you know that, that, That's more of a flight. But um, there aren't great mid-haul transports. Or even let's say you live in the suburbs of of San Diego or the suburbs of New York and you want to get into the city. Sometimes driving into a congested city can be an hour, hour and a half drive. Mm -hmm. It can be no fun. And you want to take the Uber. My gosh, that bill is going to run you. So there are not great mid-haul transportation options in the marketplace today. EV tolls are going to be that. EV tolls, so I want to go to L.A., 
I'm going to drive to a vertiport. I'm mm-hmm. going to hop in this EV tall. This EV tall is going to fly me to a vertiport in LA. And then I'm going to get in my Uber and then go where I want to when I'm already in LA. It's going to mm-hmm. be faster. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be less hassle. So it, it's an optimized medium haul transportation medium. Same with New York to Boston, same with Miami to Orlando, whatever it may be. Like it makes a lot of sense to have that vertiport exist in, um, in cities around cities and they're going to launch those vertiports in 2024. So Joby Aviation, a leading player in this space, they have four years and maintain today. They will start operations in 2024. That may seem like a you know a long time away, but we're nearing the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. Before you know it, you're going to bat your eye. It's going to be New Year's party, and it's going to be 2023. <laughs> Now we're in 2023. Now we're a year away. We're 12 months away from this breakthrough transportation medium Mm -hmm. that could revolutionize the way we travel launching for the first time ever. Do you think Wall Street's going to get excited? Do you think some (laughs) investors are going to buy into this hype story? Do you think Joby, Archer, Mm -hmm. uh, Lilium, all these other players are going to start advertising more aggressively? United Airlines, they just bought, I think, another 300 uh, EV EV tall aircraft. Do you think Mm -hmm. they're going to start advertising for it? You're going to start seeing it everywhere in 2023. And that's when the hype cycle is going to start. That's when EV tall stocks are going to soar. So when I hear Air Canada bought 30 electric aircraft, I don't think, oh my God, electric airplanes are the future. They're not hydrogen airplanes of the future. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is that this, for me, is evidence of why EV talls are going to have a massive 2023 and why EV tall stocks could be some of the biggest winners next year. So I'm very bullish on those stocks as well for a 2023 breakout. It's kind of a sleeper mega trend, mm-hmm. and I think it's about to wake up in a big way. So then what what is the impact right now with Air Canada's order of these 30 electric electric aircraft are they EV tolls or are they these No they're just they're just they're, they're, they're pure electric planes mm-hmm. yeah they're not EV tolls they're pure electric planes um the direct implication of that for me is just hey people wake up okay the transportation world is changing mm-hmm. dramatically and Air Canada is now looking at electric aircraft. Like, just just sit with that for a bit. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. pretty novel. That's pretty big. It's pretty. Yeah. So this whole thing, like electric vehicles are overrated, or that you know we're going to go back to gas cars everywhere. That's not happening because mm-hmm. we're looking at electric. I just told you that Mercedes Benz released an electric uh, long haul delivery truck. So mm-hmm. we're looking at electric trucks. We're looking at electric buses. We're looking at electric planes. We're looking at electric helicopters. Like. This, this trend is proliferating, proliferating excuse me, so rapidly mm-hmm. that it's becoming unstoppable. The electrification, or actually more accurately, the decarbonization of transportation. Because like mm-hmm. I said, I think hydrogen is going to play a critical role in long-haul trucks and in aircraft and in ships and in stuff like that. So the, the hydrogenification <laughs> and electrification of transportation is an unstoppable megatrend. That is rapidly proliferating right now, and you need to be invested alongside it, not against it. Coining a ton of terms today. Uh, <laughs> I identification. I like. I like that word. I like that word. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit. Another weird headline I caught last week. Uh, Walmart. It's rolling out virtual try-on rooms for its clothes on its website. Yeah. You know, we've seen com- we've seen this technology. Uh, we've seen companies like Wayfair kind of do it with furniture. Um, you know, right. Snap does it with clothes too. I think. Uh, but is this the next evolution of online shopping? And if so, who are the current leaders? 
Yes, I yes, virtual augmented reality, um, extended reality. That is absolutely the future of online shopping, no doubt. Um, what's interesting though is I think the way it's going to be implemented is not the way a lot of people think it's going to be implemented. So a lot of people, you say virtual augmented extended reality. And you think putting on these massive bulky Oculus headsets or whatever, and then plugging into a metaverse and that's how you do things. I don't think people are ever going to do that like on a ubiquitous scale. Mm-hmm. Yes, the iPhone became ubiquitous and a lot of people in the you know early 2000s said it wasn't going to become ubiquitous. But it became ubiquitous because it wasn't a hassle. It actually improved convenience. Mm-hmm. Putting on a massive headset, I don't care how awesome it is that's not convenient <laughs> and I, an iphone fits in the palm of my hand and it's boom, 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 boom. It's yeah i mean come on headset yeah. no yeah. but what people are engineering are different ways to plug you in to the metaverse to plug you in to augmented reality to plug you into extended reality um one of the interesting ways that i'm seeing is there's a company called brailleon uh startup and what they're doing is they're building I'm going to use the term XR desktop setups. Okay. So it's it's like this massive screen mm-hmm. that's curved, a massive curved screen. And I think it's about 122 inches from end to end, and it's about five feet deep. So it's this kind of like semicircle screen, and it's got a cover to it, and it's got a bottom to it. And what you do is I think you're supposed to put it on your desk, and then it takes up your entire desk and then you just sit and you put your head kind of in it. Uh-huh. And then you just, like, like, you're just working like this, but you're now immersed in this kind of three dimensional screen that is going to be feeding you augmented extended reality stuff. Okay. I think that's the way people plug into it. I don't okay. think it's, we have these headsets and then we go everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think it's more mm-hmm. like, I'm going to sit down because uh, believe it or not, one of the best applications of XR, VR, AR is work uh, applications Mm -hmm. that sitting down and be able to have multiple screens, do multiple things, drag and drop, kind of make things happen. Like the work environment actually is a great place for VR to have huge benefits. So I think people, as opposed to having desks and like, I have like 16 monitors here, just have one big VR thing Mm -hmm. and boom, I'm plugged in every time I just sit down. And then I sit down, I plug into the VR environment, I'm with it, I'm working, boom, 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 boom check out, go on and do my, you know, my regular life. So I think that is kind of the application of, of, of how this is, is going to work. VR is going to exist through different devices than, than headsets. The other one is lenses and that's where virtual try on stuff comes on. So Snapchat's mm-hmm. a big pioneer in this. And what they have are these, these lenses that they basically leverage your phone. So it's no new tech, no new, um, hardware Mm -hmm. they leverage your phone's camera which now has lidar sensors in it so that you can basically try on these lenses and see oh this um this shirt looks good on me these shoes look good on me these glasses look good on me so on and so forth and that allows people to virtually try on things without having to buy bulky headsets so i do think what walmart's doing shopify's doing some stuff with it wayfair's doing some stuff with it snapchat's doing some stuff with it this brailleon company's doing some cool stuff i do think virtual extended reality those technologies augmented reality have huge upside potential but not in the vein of headsets mm-hmm. in the vein of different types of hardware that mm-hmm. aren't as intrusive yes a 122 inch curved screen five foot depth thing sounds very intrusive but if, mm-hmm. if it just sits at your desk all day it's not intrusive, right? It just sits at your desk like your monitor. So that's it. 
So mm -hmm. I think these are novel technologies coming to the forefront that are going to introduce VR, AR, XR to a wider range of people. The reality is this technology has a lot of potential, but the hardware through which the companies are trying to introduce that technology to the masses is limiting. Mm -hmm. Get rid of the headsets. If I'm, if I'm over at Meta, I'm over mm -hmm. at Amazon, whatever company is designing these, Microsoft, my directors would be say, get rid of the headsets and find a different way for people to plug into the, to the mm -hmm. metaverse. You do that, you find a convenient way for people to do that, and boom, it's off to the races. Because think, think about the internet for a second. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm going on and on here, but think about the internet for the second. The internet really took off when you put it in everybody's hand. Mm -hmm. Yep. When you made the internet this big, mm -hmm. six inches, what is it, six inches, five inches? Mm -hmm. When you made the internet this big, everybody got on it. Before yep. the iPhone, not everybody had a computer and was on the internet and typing away and doing all those things. I remember going to grade school in the 2000s and learning how to type was like a huge class because a lot of people didn't know how to type. Mm -hmm. Like that was a big deal. So like the internet was not a ubiquity until the iPhone rolled around. You make a novel technology with huge value props, exceptionally convenient, and boom, that's a recipe for mass ubiquitous adoption. So, so then that's what I'm looking for in the VR realm. So then let me so then I I totally agree with you. You know, the big headsets are definitely not the way way to go. You know, we had Google Glass. They that was sort of the initial conception of augmented reality. It was but it looked hideous. Um, uh, but when you talk, when we get to a point where it's not a giant headset, it's not this obtrusive thing that you're wearing on your head, but it comes as, you know, commonplace as a pair of glasses, which, you know, uh, I know that I, I bought a pair of these, uh, I forget what they're, uh, they're called, um, focals. Um, mm -hmm. they had augmented reality, very basic. They could, they could give you turn by turn directions. They could, but they looked like a pair of glasses. It had a little bit of a big projector on the side. Still a little bit bulkier than your average pair of glasses, but they looked like a pair of glasses. Eventually, I do think that technology is going to end up coming to fruition. When that happens, do you see that shift? Is that the technology or is it something before that that's going to have this massive AV, augmented reality, extended reality uh, adoption? No, it, it, whatever hardware figures out how to make VR mm -hmm. ultra accessible and ultra convenient, Mm -hmm. that's when this industry goes crazy. And yes, the maker of that hardware device is going to make a lot of money. Apple's made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But then once everybody's once everybody got on the internet in the 2010s, mm -hmm. so many empires were built on top of that infrastructure, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. just Apple that made a bunch of money and making the internet ubiquity. Mm -hmm. It was Facebook. It was Netflix. It was Amazon. It, you know, all of these companies be built empires on top of the internet becoming ubiquity. So we're just waiting for that hardware breakthrough, that single hardware breakthrough mm -hmm. in VR, AR, XR to make this technology ubiquity. Then the company that makes that hardware and hardware competing with it will make a lot of money of course but then empires are going to be built on top of the metaverse becoming ubiquity on top of augmented reality becoming ubiquity and those mm -hmm. are the companies i'm more excited about because yes apple has been a tremendous investment but honestly bigger returns were had by buying amazon bigger returns were had by buying netflix bigger returns mm -hmm. were had by buying microsoft that there were bigger returns had from the launch of the iphone to today than buying apple mm -hmm. so i do think that once the hardware element is figured out here 
And I don't know if that happens this year or next year or 2024. I do know it's probably going to happen within the next three years. Mm-hmm. Given all the innovation I'm seeing, this whole Brilliant thing with the desktop is yeah. really cool. I've seen VR contact lenses. They're trying to work on those, the VR glasses you've talked about. Um, so there's a lot of innovation. Happening. People are trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. The more people try, the sooner we're going to get to a solution. So we're eventually going to get to a solution. And when that happens, you're going to want to be invested in the companies building software applications on top of the metaverse. Those are going to be the companies that develop enormous value in the 2020 to 2025, 2030 range. Makes sense. Uh, two more topics I want to cover this week uh, before we wrap. Mm-hmm. Uh, autonomous driving and psychedelics. First with uh, AVs. Um, and we talked about it last week. We talked about the Domino's delivery uh, autonomous vehicle. Uh, are we still just transporting girds around town? Uh. <laughs> Yes, but humans are starting to enter the fold. Um, Xpeng, the Chinese electric vehicle company, just debuted a, a very legitimate self-driving pilot program um, in China. Okay. So that's that's very good news. Uh, Ford just expanded its hands-free driving technology, I believe, to the Mustang and something else. So they're expanding it over there. Uh, GM Cruise is launching uh, – is planning to launch a robo-taxi service – in Phoenix and Houston by the end of the year. So it's extending beyond the transportation of goods. So those three things I just mentioned are now starting to include the transportation of humans, of people uh, from place to place. So the autonomous vehicle revolution, it's a real sleeper right now. It's moving at a pretty healthy pace. Yeah, so again, we talked about this last week and we talked about the big thing was, oh, it's transporting just goods right now in a week. You know, we had these three, you had these three announcements. Why isn't this bigger news right now? Uh, the same reason nothing else is bigger news right okay. now. Okay. <laughs> they, Aaron, let me, let me, t- they are 3D printing homes. Mm-hmm. We are sending satellites regularly into space to do a great number of things, including beam internet connectivity down to Earth, mm-hmm. any place on Earth at any point in time. Um, we are seeing massive developments in the autonomous vehicle space. We are seeing huge energy storage deployments. We're seeing massive developments in the electric vehicle space. Um, these are landmark things they're like wow like huge steps forward for technology for humankind for society and yet nobody's really talking about them and Mm -hmm. nobody's really talking about them because of inflation and because of the fed in bull markets technological developments like these are front and center because there's nothing to worry about Mm -hmm. in bear markets these developments take a back seat to the macroeconomic concerns at hand. In 2008, it was great financial crisis, housing crash, financial sector meltdown. Today, it's inflation in the Fed. And so long as those things are hogging the center stage, people aren't going to be talking about autonomous vehicle developments, electric vehicle developments, energy storage developments, space launches, 3D printing of homes, all these cool things that are happening in the world today. They're not going to talk about those because they're so worried about inflation in the Fed. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole thesis here and the exciting part is that history shows massive headwinds and black swans like inflation in the Fed 
they don't take center stage forever. Yeah. They come to center stage, they hog it for about one to two, maybe three years at most, and then they leave. <laughs> and they're gone for 10 years. And in their absence, all of these exciting technological developments people weren't talking about and weren't excited about come to the forefront. They mm. retake center stage. And when that happens, you get a massive boom in the stocks related to those industries. So what we're betting on, what we're mm-hmm. planning is, okay, inflation in the Fed have taken center stage for over a year now. Mm-hmm. Their, their time's overdue. They're overstaying yeah. their welcome. Yeah. That soon enough, they are going to leave center stage. And people are going to start paying attention to the fact that XPeng just launched a very, very, very legitimate, very robust self-driving program mm-hmm. in um, in China. Mm-hmm. That Ford is expanding its hands-free driving to several of its other models and is making that almost a ubiquity across new cars. That GM's Cruise is launching a robo-taxi service by the end of the year in Phoenix and Houston. People are going to start paying attention to that again. Mm-hmm. Remember how much hype things like that got in 2020 and in early 2021? Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to go back into. But we have to wait for inflation in the Fed to leave center stage. And the good news is, is that their time's ticking. <laughs> I Risks think- like that don't stay on center stage for that long. We've been here for a year, mm-hmm. if not longer. It's time for those things to start heading to the exits. And I think they will soon enough. I think the better news is that we've been talking about these things for our listeners for the last for the last year or so. And yep. uh, just to make sure that they they're getting all the great details before like you said, we're going to have this big boom in the coming years. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, um, sec- uh, but my second topic I wanted to touch base before we wrap. Uh, on the Sykes front, I did read a small, interesting headline. Again, small headline, not big news. Um, uh, that a small town in Michigan just made September Psychedelics Awareness Month or something like <laughs> that. Uh, seems a little weird, but that's very encouraging to your psychedelics thesis, right? I mean, it is, Aaron, because we're playing into the whole destigmatization narrative Mm -hmm. that it's not just a small town in Michigan made September Psychedelics Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. It's a small town in Michigan made September Psychedelics Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And Netflix released a documentary of destigmatizing psychedelics. And uh, Netflix made a documentary, a docu series before that, along the same veins. And a survey from... Uh, monitoring the future showed that high school drug consumption of psychedelics is on a rapid, rapid, rapid rise. So you put all these things together and individually they seem like small data points, but you know, enough small data points create one massive movement. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what's happening right now is you're seeing these little things happen all across the psychedelic space and the mainstream media, society, people, consumers are starting to look at, legitimately look at psychedelics in a different light than they did one, two, three years ago. It is now in, I'm not going to say it's a positive light mm-hmm. across mainstream media, but it's definitely not a negative one. Mm-hmm. I would I would label it as cautiously optimistic about mm-hmm. what these drugs can do. And I believe that as the science continues to support positive therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, and as 
companies like Compass Pathways continue to pioneer their drugs and clear them through FDA trials and bring them to market. And as companies like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu continue to release documentaries about the wonders of psychedelics, and as more small towns in Michigan and maybe California and who knows where else start to uh, decriminalize and then destigmatize with you know, Psychedelics Awareness Month and Psychedelics Awareness Weeks, whatever you want to call them. Um, as all that comes together, you're creating a movement towards psychedelic inspired medications becoming a status quo treatment for mental health in the United States. And I think that's a very positive thing for society because the mm -hmm. science does bear out that these have wonderful therapeutic benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a positive thing for investors because you have this is going to be the biggest change and most positive impact mm -hmm. to the pharmaceutical industry in the United States in our lifetimes. And there's a lot of money that's going to be made as a result of psychedelic-inspired medications becoming the status quo treatment for addiction. ADHD, depression, anxiety, anorexia, things like that. So um, a lot of money is going to be made here. And I think people should be – investors should be positioned to capitalize on that. There are quite a few psychedelic stocks out there right now. I would be bullish on most of them. Okay. Well, that kind of uh, wraps up all the topics we have, but we definitely have some fan questions from Rusty Russ. What are your thoughts on Mullen? Given it has fallen back even though they keep announcing great news – where will the stock go from here? Uh, not a Mullen fan. Not a Mullen fan at all. Uh, I think the electric vehicle sector is overcrowded. Too many competitors. I think a lot of them are going to go under. Workhorse, Lordstown Motors. Um, there are a couple others out there that I think are just going to go to zero. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mullen, they don't have anything special to me. They're, they're, mm -hmm. The team isn't impressive. Uh, the models aren't impressive. I'm, I'm not. The technology is not impressive. The production is not impressive. I there's nothing about Mullen that makes me think they have what it takes. You have to understand, you don't just have to have a good – the electric vehicle space is so hot. Mm -hmm. Having a good company isn't enough. Mm -hmm. You have to beat Tesla. You have to beat Lucid. Mm -hmm. You have to beat Rivian. Mm -hmm. You have to beat Fisker. You mm -hmm. have to beat Ford, mm -hmm. GM. You have to beat Volkswagen. You have to beat Audi. You have to beat all those guys. Mm -hmm. I, I named maybe one third of the auto industry right there, and it was like a dozen companies. Yeah, there's not enough. There's not enough. You know, not enough room. Everyone's rubbing elbows. There's not mm -hmm. enough room for just some random company to come in here and sell cars. That, that's not how this works anymore. Mm -hmm. You got to outcompete because it's a crowded industry, and I don't think Mullen has what it takes to outcompete. Nor do I think a lot of companies out there have what it takes to outcompete. You got to find, if you're looking to play in the electric vehicle space, you got to find companies with advantages, with competitive advantages, whether that's technological, execution, resource-wise. See, for Lucid, it's technology. They have mm -hmm. unrivaled battery technology. They figured mm -hmm. out how to take advantage of dead zones and electric vehicle batteries, optimize them, and create a car that drives for 520 stinking miles. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. Massive tech advantage. For Rivian, it's resources. They have the backing of Amazon. Mm -hmm. That is they got $17 billion in the balance sheet. They have a lot of money to make this work, to execute it. So that's their advantage. For Fisker, it's their business model. They have this platform sharing business model that allows them to outsource everything. They've secured all the partners, reduce their costs, and bring to market a high-quality, high-performance electric vehicle, electric SUV, at mm -hmm. a very blockbuster, affordable price. So for each of the startups that I'm bullish on, they have a distinct advantage. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what Mullins is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't identify that advantage. And if you can't identify that advantage, you should probably give up on the stock. Mm-hmm. So my follow-up to that is, are we done seeing these new innovative startups in the EV space? You, like you said, you just mentioned a third of the industry. There's a dozen names right there. The, the way that the EV industry is kind of progressing is that we have the, these new technologies coming in from those names that you just mentioned. Are we done seeing smaller startups emerge in the EV space? I mean, not yet. I do think there is room for more innovation over the next two to three years. But I think post-2025, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Think about the auto market before the electric yeah, vehicle. Exactly. That, yeah. Go ahead. Yep. What new, what new auto companies emerged in ni- the 1980s, 90s, or 2000s? Mm-hmm. Like, were there any new auto firms that were started in that time? I, I don't think, to my knowledge, I don't know. But again, I, I'm no expert about the auto, the gas yeah. power industry. I just remember the, Kia when they had the dancing hamsters. So, But it, it's, it seems like GM and Ford and all, they've been around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So... Um, I do think at some point the industry becomes established and it's going to be very hard for new entrants to crack in. But mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet. I do think there's enough where, you know, we're still very malleable with this mm-hmm. industry. So I think in the next two or three years, there is definitely room for new entrants to make a dent. Okay. After that, once we're selling, you know, 20, 30, 40% of new cars are electric. At that point in time, as, once we get over 50%, especially at that point in time, it's it's cemented. And there's not much room for, for disruptive new entrants. Okay. Uh, our next question from Rob Norman. How can the Fed crush inflation when they're not removing M2? They can only control demand, right? So how low can the Fed's actions really get it? Four to five percent? Uh, and where would you guess inflation, the CPI, is at the end of the year? Six percent? Uh, I think that the Fed can do a lot with interest rates and with quantitative tightening. So quantitative mm-hmm. tightening is supposed to reduce M2 and, and uh, interest rates are supposed to have that effect. Now, the reduction in M2 is going to be a lagging indicator of those things. So okay. interest rates today, interest rate hikes today, quantitative tightening today should lead to M2 decrease in the next three to six months. So you're going to start to see M2 come down. Um, but how much can they do? I think quite quite a bit, really. Mm-hmm. Um when interest rates go from mortgage rates, for example, mortgage rates were what, like 2% at the start of the year, 3%? What would we do at 6.2, 6.3, 6.4% now? I have a lot of friends who are in the home shopping crowd. Mm-hmm. They've gotten raises. They're making more money. The, the prices of homes have stabilized and gone down. Yet their budgets have gone down too mm-hmm. because interest rates went from 3% to 6.62, 6.3, 6.4. Mm-hmm. Their buying power is getting destroyed because of the Fed. Same mm-hmm. as happening with, with auto loans. Same as happening with, with any type of big ticket loan. With your credit card bill, you don't pay that. Man, you're going to get hit pretty hard these days. So they can do quite a bit. Anybody that has a loan out right now will tell you what the Fed is doing it's definitely impacting a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I do think they can do quite a bit to crush the demand side of the inflation equation. And you're seeing that happening. The, the shelter market, the shelter shelter costs are finally disinflating. If the Fed never stepped in here and mortgage rates remained at 3% or lower, you would not have housing prices declining. 
There is simply not enough supply. We are mm-hmm. in a supply constrained housing market. So housing prices would continue to rise. Rents would continue to rise. The only reason they are coming down now is because the Fed stepped in and did something. So the Fed does have a lot of power on the demand side. And I think what they're doing, we are seeing in the data that it's working. So I'm very confident the Fed has a control on the demand side of the equation of inflation. And you got to talk about the supply, the supply side. Globally, supply chains are improving in lots of places. And not to mention, because supply chains were so destroyed throughout 2020 and 2021, and because economic demand was so hot during 2020 and 2021, especially 2021 and into early 2022, retailers and people who bought supply were over-ordering that stuff. And so they over-ordered, thinking there was going to be a lot of demand. Now the supply chains have normalized, and they're just feeding all of these retailers a whole bunch of supply that they can't sell anymore. So you're seeing massive discounting happening because of the supply uh, excess situation, the supply glut. Mm-hmm. So I think when I look at the supply side and demand side equation or uh, side of the inflation equation, I see very constructive reasons to believe that inflation is meaningfully decelerating. <clears throat> and where is inflation going to end the year? Well, I think it continues to do somewhere between minus 0.1 and plus point zero or plus zero point one percent month over month over the next six to twelve months, that puts inflation right around a six handle by the end of the year mm-hmm. and back to two to three percent by the early summer twenty twenty three. So I think over the next twelve months we get back to two to three percent inflation. I really do. And I think mm-hmm. yes, end of the year six percent. That's my target. Okay. Great. Uh, last question from Ben Laracy. Very quick, very easy. Canoe thoughts. Ah, canoe. So I like canoe. We talked about the electric vehicle space. Um, and it's because what's the advantage? They've developed a really unique technology, a really unique car platform that was so compelling. Apple thought about buying the company. Mm-hmm. Um, this platform can do a lot. Mm-hmm. The company has liquidity risks. The company has resource risks. The company mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of risks, a lot of red flags of the stock, no doubt about it. That's why it's a two dollar stock. Mm-hmm. But the technology is super compelling, folks. Mm-hmm. And those risks are priced into shares. The upside is not. I really like the the stock at these levels. I think that there is a good chance that they address these liquidity risks and that they scale this, what is a really cool technology, Mm -hmm. into a car, a series of cars that have really high demand. We've talked about this before. The Mm -hmm. pickup truck makes a lot of sense a lot of sense for independent contractors, a lot of sense for construction workers, a lot of sense in that universe. The delivery van makes a lot of sense. Why do you think Walmart signed the contract? Optimized space. That makes so much sense. Nobody else can do it the way they do it because of that technology, because of mm-hmm. that car platform, that patented, that proprietary and patented car platform, the steer-by-wire or drive-by-wire technology. Super cool. And then the, the lifestyle vehicle. Yes, it looks like a bug, but I had a friend that just pre-ordered it because he has a lot of animals. He mm-hmm. has a lot of dogs and a lot of cats, and he wants to stuff them all in there sometimes and they go to the, the animal park, the dog parks or whatever. <laughs> them. So like, it's a weird use case. I get yeah. it. Yeah. But it's a use case nonetheless. Mm-hmm. That canoe has this weird looking car, weird looking series of cars that has unique use cases and they have a competitive advantage to serve those unique use cases in a way no other car company can. So I like the long-term story there. I'm Mm -hmm. not saying the stock's going to be a grand slam winner. I'm saying Mm -hmm. it could be. 
Mm-hmm. There are massive risks, but the risk reward profile at current levels, $2 stock make a lot of sense to me. So I am bullish on GNU at current levels. Don't bet the farm on it. Don't put your lunch money on it. <laughs> That's for plain money. But that plain money could pay off in a very, very large way one day. So I, I would stick with that stock for sure. All right. Uh, well, that wraps our fan questions. Great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Uh, Aaron, we covered a lot of ground today. What are we, like an hour 15 here? So, yeah, yeah. Man, I am, I am talked out. Are you, you've successfully <laughs> talked me out. Congratulations. I didn't think that was possible. Uh, yeah, but I'm glad that we got everything out that we need to talk about today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, all.